Welcome to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Because our mission is to cultivate meaningful connections through compassionate listening and to train others to do the same, we thought it might be best to highlight both aspects, listening and training in a podcast. We are so excited to share these rich conversations with you. Someone. Someone with a story to share. Someone who needs a friend. Someone who is grieving, angry, lonely, afraid, or has questions about matters of faith. Someone who simply needs someone to listen. You are someone. You have a story worth sharing. You have inherent worth. You deserve to be seen, heard, and known. You are someone. Today's guest is Sarah the Barge. We first came to know Sarah through her wonderful book, The Invisible Girls. In fact, we loved it so much that we invited her to speak at Someone to Tell It To's annual gathering two years ago. She's delightful. For those of you who tuned into our last episode with Jun Lei Lee, he's going to be this year's annual gathering speaker, and we encourage you to go to our website, someonetotellitto.org, to learn more about that event. So in addition to being an author, Sarah is a speaker, a blogger, and a journalist. The Invisible Girls was a memoir that weaves her story of nearly dying of breast cancer in her 20s, together with the story of a Somali refugee family she met on a train in Portland, Oregon, as she was recovering from her cancer treatments. Her writing is so popular, it's appeared in National Geographic, USA Today, Everyday Health, Relevant Magazine, Christianity Today, Huffington Post, Red Letter Christians, and Sojourners. Sarah studied medical science at Yale School of Medicine and journalism at Columbia School of Journalism. She's practiced international medicine extensively, volunteering in countries such as Toga in, in West Africa, in Kenya, and the Dominican Republic. Her book, Well, is the story of three months that she practiced medicine in Togo, and that was launched in November 2017. In addition, for three months, including the 2018 holiday season, Sarah practiced medicine in the war-torn nation of South Sudan. Sarah currently lives in San Francisco, California, but she grew up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, very near where we are today in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Well, welcome today, Sarah. It's so good to talk with you again. We want to we're going to we're going to quote you. You wrote this past February in a blog. You wrote this. In some ways, I don't have much to show for the nearly three months I spent in South Sudan. I didn't earn any money. I didn't do anything newsworthy. Working at a small hospital in a remote village without electricity or running water doesn't get you accolades or attention. I'm just one small person trying to do small acts of healing in a great big hurting world. Wow. That's, that's, that statement is, we think, really powerful. So we want to know, and we're pretty sure that uh, a lot of our listeners are going to want to know this too, what inspired you to spend nearly three months, including the holiday season, providing medical care 
in South Sudan because you know we all know that you know it's a it's kind of a scary place um, and what you know and what were the so what inspired you and then what are some of the few most significant lessons you learned during your time there yeah well so South Sudan is the world's newest country for people that aren't familiar with it. It was at the Sudan itself was in a civil war for decades, which led to millions of people dying and then led to the lost boys. So these boys were orphaned and they wandered the continent of Africa because they didn't know where to find home again. And so the solution was to create a new country called South Sudan, which split from Sudan. And even though the civil war has resolved, there's still a lot of conflict in South Sudan is still an active war zone. So as part of what I do in international medical work, I teach basic first aid and medical care to teachers because we found that often if a child is injured or ill, the, the most qualified person to intervene will be their teacher. And it's the person that spends a lot of time with those students. What happens in South Sudan is that six months out of the year, it's rainy season, and so the roads get washed out, and nobody can get into the villages or out. And so if a child is injured or ill, they, they can't get that child out to a hospital, and no medical workers can get in. And so last year, I went and spent a month on the ground there doing workshops for teachers to teach them, what do you do if a child falls? How do you splint a fracture? How do you treat malaria and diarrhea and fevers? And then we gave each teacher a, a big duffel bag of supplies, like a kit to take back to the school with them so that during the rainy season, they can care for these kids. At the end of that month, I spent a few days volunteering at the local hospital because I had some time before I was scheduled to fly back to the US. And what I saw at that hospital absolutely broke my heart. There was no electricity. Patients would lie all night in the absolute pitch black dark. So there was no fans and it's a hundred plus degrees. The hospital had run out of all of the medical supplies. And so, you know, they, there were women in labor who should have gotten a C-section and they had the staff that knew how to do a C-section, but they didn't have any any drugs and so they went to the women and they said you can have a c-section but you'll feel everything or you can die and the women said we'd rather die and they did and they do and I just witnessed the suffering there and it was just for a few days and I came back to the U.S. and for that whole time months and months and months that I was back in the US I just it was so heavy on my heart knowing what suffering was going on there and and just feeling like if there was anything I could do to alleviate even a little bit of that suffering I just kept praying God send me back if there's something I can do so it worked out for me to go from uh, December to March this year and I spent almost all the time at the hospital Practicing medicine, I ran the emergency room and the medical ward, and then also teaching the staff there so that even after I'm gone, they can continue to practice a higher level of care to try to take care of these patients. You also talk a lot about in your writing, there are a lot of things that we can live for in this world. 
but we can also choose to live for love and you absolutely are living for love talk about what it's like to to live for love what does that look like well i think when we look at the world there are so many different motivations there are people that live for fame to become you know a viral sensation or a youtube star or celebrity there are people that live for status who live for money who live for comfort who live for safety and i think in the end all of those are illusions they don't last and they don't give us ultimate meaning and they don't really feed our souls and our spirits the way that i think god intended and i think what we were created for is love to be loved by god and to deeply experience the love that god has for us and when we look at the scripture it says god is love love itself is the essence of god and so we were created to experience that but also we were created to express that to the world around us and i think that's the ultimate meaning of life i think that's the ultimate meaning of our existence here on the earth is to experience the love of god deeply in our souls and then to express that love to everyone around us in whatever ways by whatever means we can we do a lot of speaking increasing amount of speaking and whether it's in churches or to civic groups businesses or other organizations, uh, sometimes we feel like we're a broken record because we say much of what you're saying, that, that w w what it's all about is love. Very simply, it's about love. And we just try to hammer that <laughs> message because we, we just feel that sometimes we just make it so hard and complicated, <laughs> you know, as human beings. And, and, and yeah, it, it's simply love. Oh, it was phenomenal. Bishop Curry. He's an amazing person. Yes. One of the things that I have seen, and I don't know, you know, your experience or how you, um, you know, how you explain the fact that sometimes it's hard for that message of love to get through. One of the things that I've learned is that oftentimes we think that the opposite of love is hate. But when we look at the Bible, it doesn't say that the opposite of love is hate. It says that the opposite of love is fear. It says there is no fear in love. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And I think that's true. I think we, we don't fail to help our neighbors and people in need because we hate them. We fail to help them because we are afraid. We're afraid we're gonna do it wrong. We're afraid of what it will cost us. We're afraid of the vulnerability. We are afraid. And I think what it means to become a person of love, that, that journey of transformation, of walking in the steps of Jesus and becoming more like Jesus, is, is for most of us not a journey of overcoming hate. It's a journey of overcoming fear. And I think there's a reason why don't be afraid is the most commonly repeated command in the entire Bible. It's over 300 times because I think that is the thing that stands in the way of us truly living out love. As our mission's grown since the last time you were here for our annual gathering, we are in the process of continually scaling what we're doing and because all of us can be better listeners, um, whether we have a, a calling to do this professionally or just in our everyday life. And we've been adamant about trying to send folks 
out in pairs because we actually have a story in our second book about the need and why Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs. It's an oft, often overlooked value that he was implementing. Um, and, and people get sent out by themselves. And then there is an added amount of fear and loneliness. And, and so we don't enter into those dark, unchartered spaces with other people because we're afraid. But when we have someone by our side, it is a lot easier to do it. We're not alone. We're, we're so much less afraid. In fact, I mean, I, I, you know, I think we can probably both say that neither of us have feared any of you know, the situations we've entered into in listening you know, to people because we're together and we don't have to fear that being alone. So to take us back to the moment when you first got off the airplane in South Sudan as a woman in a kind of a war-torn country, we have another actually woman who we have trained in compassionate listening and she had done some mission work in Africa at one point and I remember very poignantly she shared a story about when she got off the airplane and she was in an airport all by herself and someone was supposed to come and pick her up and never came and so here she is in an airport in the middle of nowhere by herself uh, having to wait and trust and and uh, feeling so alone in that moment and uh, just, yeah, we'd just love to hear about your experiences when, when you first hit, hit the ground. Yeah. Well, it is daunting to leave, you know, friends and family behind and leave the country for three months. And even more daunting to do that because you're going to a war zone. And I was very acutely aware of the risk I was taking. When you, when you look at the U.S. State Department's website, they have warnings for every country and you look at South Sudan and it gives it like the least safest rating of all. And then it says, we're not going to forbid <laughs> Americans. Yeah. And so what made you want to go there? <laughs> <laughs> so basically the, the U.S. says we're not going to forbid citizens to go there, but you have to understand if you go there and you get into trouble, we're not coming to get you. And so there's this this level of you understand the risk and how dangerous it is. And especially, you know, like you said, as a woman and as a white woman and an American, all of those things put you at a very high risk for things like kidnapping or worse. So when I landed, there were some, um, so I work with a, an, an NGO that's on the ground there called Rebuild South Sudan that was started by one of the Lost Boys. And all of the paid employees are South Sudanese people that live in the country and work in the country. And so when I landed, they sent six of their tallest guys to the <laughs> airport. As soon as I walked off the plane onto the tarmac, these guys, God bless them, they were over six foot tall. I mean, they were big, big guys. And they just formed a circle around me. And they walked me through the all of this kind of chaos of the airport. They, they just formed a circle and they walked me through to the car. And the only thing I could see was their feet because they were just towering over me. But I was like protected by them. And then when we got to the parking lot, um, and we got to the car, 
they laid me down in the backseat of the car and put a blanket over me because if somebody even just saw me sitting in the backseat of a car, I would be a target. Wow. So I had to lay down in the backseat until we got to the guest house and the guest house has um, a gate and a guard. And the only time I could kind of get sit back up and take the blanket off was after we were inside the gate and they locked the gate behind us. How long was that ride? About 20 minutes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was tense. It was tense. Did you feel like a celebrity at first, you know, with all <laughs> surrounded with this entourage? And, there's no uh, red carpet. Yeah. I felt more like an assassination though. target than a celebrity, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That but here's perfect. what I've learned. You know, when I was getting ready to go to South Sudan, so many people said, oh, you're so brave. You're so brave. And I, I just thought if you only knew how much thought and prayer and angst and sleepless nights have gone into this decision, if you only knew how hard it was for me to sit down with my dad and go over my will and go over what I wanted to happen if I didn't make it back alive from South Sudan, like if you only knew how how anxiety provoking those things were for me, you wouldn't, you wouldn't call me brave. And, and I realized later that there's a difference between being brave and being courageous. So being brave is when you do something bold or you take a big risk because you don't feel the fear. But having courage is when you do something bold or you take a big risk when you feel all the fear, but you choose to do it anyway because something matters more. And so what took me to South Sudan wasn't bravery. It wasn't this kind of cavalier, I don't care if it's dangerous, I'm going to go. It was courage. It was, I know how dangerous this is. I know the reality of this and I'm afraid, but I'm going to do this anyway because the suffering of my brothers and sisters in South Sudan and the good that I can do there matters more to me than the fear that I'm feeling right now. Thank you for saying that, for sharing that and, and, and dis describing that, defining, defining that difference because that, that, that's important. And um, yeah, you were definitely courageous, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. You come back to the United States and it must have felt I think you've even used the word surreal, what, we, what we've read. It must have been extremely jarring and confusing for you. So talk, talk about that. Yeah, it, it does feel strange. The best way I could describe it was if you are living on a ship for a long time and you develop sea legs, you develop this way of balancing yourself and, and staying upright in spite of the, the currents. And then all of a sudden you dock and you're on land, but you still have those sea legs. It just feels disorienting and it feels difficult to find a new way of balancing yourself. That's the, the best way I can kind of describe it. I didn't have culture shock the way that some people describe it. Like it wasn't like, you know, I turned on the electricity in my room and and all of a sudden, you know, that was a shocking experience. Or I went into the grocery store and saw this abundance of food and I was shocked by it. Like I didn't have that feeling of culture shock. I just had this feeling of, I don't know how to balance my way of being in the world because for three months I was used to being in such a different space and, and being in such a different way. And so, 
even still, you know, I've been back for a couple months and, and it still feels a little bit strange. And then also it, I feel like I left a little bit of my heart in South Sudan. And so I also feel like I'm home now, but there's a piece of my heart that's missing that I'll only find if I go back to South Sudan. Yeah, question I'd love to ask. Would you, have you thought about going back? Is, is that something you would like to do? I would. Honestly, I would go anywhere in the world if God called me to go there. And South Sudan has a very special place in my heart. Right now, um, it's, you know, it's such an unstable situation that it's difficult to plan very far in advance. But if the opportunity came up and that was the right time and the right thing for me to do, 100%, I would absolutely go back. Through our work as someone to tell to, we are so privileged almost on a daily basis to enter into some really sacred spaces with people. And we do a lot of international work. We do a lot of international listening. We have uh, some, we've even had some contracts with some other organizations where we support their, their staff mm. members and, and mission teams um, in several That's countries. So in good. Africa. And That's it's so been good. so helpful for us because gosh, we are reminded often of how privileged honestly can't mm -hmm. be a better word than mm. privileged we are as and as white americans and so we just have to pinch ourselves often mm. of, of being able to yeah as, as Nouwen would say yeah he defines he would define compassion as full immersion into the condition of being human mm. and to be able to enter into those situations is, is such a it, it is such a sacred privilege and yeah you know we were thinking of you and your life and and you've entered into a lot of those sacred spaces yeah and we also want want to tell you and and for those who are listening as well that in fact our very next interview is going to be with one of those lost boys of sudan mm. we uh he, i'm sure he's got an amazing story he he does and yeah and yeah he's, He's written some of it. He's asked us to help him write a, put it into a book, mm -hmm. and and to awesome. write that. And and what a privilege that is. And uh, we've just met with him the last two weeks in a row, but we've met with him many other times over the last few mm -hmm. months. And every time uh, we we are with him, we learn more of his story, and and every time we're more horrified yeah. by by much of it. Yeah. And you know, it uh, was you know conscripted into the into fighting force with a you know machine gun and a rifle. Uh, you know, at a very young age, under ten years of age, uh, just you know horrific. But he was able, uh, the grace of God, to uh, you know immigrate to to the United States when he was about twenty years of age, and uh, he's making a life for himself here. And we just thought that it was a, it's kind of like a perfect pairing, <laughs> you know, that, that he yes. would follow, follow you, they, you know, you describe your experience there and then to have someone who actually was born there and, lived um, it. Oh, and left there yes. and it's redeeming what we see as redeeming mm. his, the horror of his story um, yeah. and, and being able to Absolutely. share it with other, with other people. So, uh, yeah, that's Sarah, incredible. Henry now is somebody that I know you quote and we quote and just an absolute hero of ours. And mm -hmm. I think we quoted him actually in our yeah, last interview. Yeah. He talks a lot about in his writing, yeah. this, this idea of voluntary displacement and downward mobility to describe mm -hmm. this, this kind of active yeah. self emptying when a person leaves one place yeah. to join another. And, uh, would you talk a yeah. little bit 
about that displacement in your life and what that's looked like? I think it comes back to what we were talking about, about living out of love. I think, you know, there are so many ways to fill ourselves up, whether it's with, you know, success or money or safety or security or whatever that may be. But all of those things never really get to the core of our soul. And I think that by emptying ourselves of those things, first of all, we can get closer to our brothers and sisters who are suffering when we're willing to let those things go that we've been striving for. And secondly, it's not just good for the people that we're able to help. It's it's good for us. And what we find is that when we're emptied of all of those things, we come to face our true selves in the mirror and find out who we really are. And then also when we're emptied of all of those things, there's nothing in the way of becoming truly deeply intimate with God. And so I find that getting, you know, getting rid of the idea of having, you know, a really um, lucrative job. You know, if I worked full time in medicine in the U.S., I could make over six figures, but I chose to go to South Sudan and make nothing. So doing those kinds of things, I mean, it let me, I know, it's a smart career move, right? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense on on paper, but but I was able to get closer to my brothers and sisters. And also it lets me let go of ego and of, of a false identity of like, this is my bank account. And so I'm worth this. It's not, it's not really a true reflection of my human value. And where I find my true value is knowing how loved I am by God. And so I think being emptied of ourselves lets us get closer to that. And then, you know, the other thing is that, um, you know, I wrote a book about my experience practicing medicine in the developing world called Well. And one of the things that I discovered and experienced when I was there is that there's a difference between a well and a cistern. So cisterns, which they had in the village, and when the water pumps stopped working, people got desperately thirsty and they would drink out of cisterns where the water was years and years old and had visible algae and even carcasses of rodents that had drowned in it. And people got really, really sick, super sick from drinking that stagnant water. And so what I realized is that cisterns always become toxic. Whenever we find things from the outside and seek to fill ourselves with them. That is either going to go stagnant and become toxic to us, or it's going to run dry and we're going to run out. But the opposite is a well. And the well's source is this deep, clean spring of water that keeps welling up and fills us up from the inside instead of us reaching for external things and filling us up from the outside. And I think that's what Jesus was talking about when he met the woman at the well and talked about being the spring of living water. And I think when we empty ourselves like a cistern drained of all of this toxic waste and tap into the spring that is the love of God, I think we become wells and that is the water that, that gives us true life. And that is the, the love and the life and the motivation that we can continue to draw upon that never runs dry.
a lot of life comes down to what is our motivation. I think there's very little that we have the opportunity to do that is absolutely like morally wrong. But I think things can become right or wrong depending on why we're doing them. And so I think, you know, I'm, you know, I'm back in the U.S. and I am practicing medicine here in the U.S. and getting paid to do it. And I don't think that that is wrong compared to going back to South Sudan and working for free. Because I think by my being here, what I'm able to do is, of course, take care of patients here living, you know, who are actually like literally my neighbors living in my community to be able to care for them, but also to be able to make money. And so I can support nonprofits. I can, um, I sponsor some children with Compassion International. I'm uh, putting money aside for a college fund for five little Somali refugee girls that I wrote about in my first book called The Invisible Girls. And so I'm able to leverage the income that I make now in order to make a different kind of difference in the kingdom. And so when an opportunity comes up, or you know, even as you all have experienced the opportunity to speak, so you take a microphone and get a spotlight and talk in front of hundreds or thousands of people, which I have the opportunity to do quite often, if you do it because of ego or because you want attention, that's the wrong thing to do. But if you do it because you want to share the love of Jesus and ignite as many hearts with that love as possible, then that same action takes on a whole new purpose. And when your motivation, I think, is pure, then that becomes the right thing to do. When your motivation is selfish or impure, then it doesn't matter what that is, it becomes the wrong thing to do. I ask you, isn't an intriguing, intriguing statement you wrote uh, several several weeks ago in a blog? You, and if you were, if you remember this, you wrote that kiss that you had heard this and you you resonated with with this statement that kiss the can the hand you cannot bite. What does that mean to you? Kiss the hand. You cannot bite. I had been back from South Sudan for a little bit, and I was wrestling with the suffering that I witnessed there. And, you know, I was able to do some good, but there's still so many problems and so much suffering happening there that I am powerless to change. And then also some things were happening in my personal life when I got back from South Sudan that were just really hard to take and not my choosing. And... And I was on my way to work and I walked by this little art studio and that was the quote that was hanging in their window. And all of a sudden, I just had this visceral reaction and I just started to cry. Kiss the hand you cannot bite. And I think what that means for me is that there are things that happen to us in our lives that we did not choose. We would never choose. There are things that happen to people we love. We would never choose them in a million years but I think what it means to kiss the hand we can't bite is to come to a level of acceptance and then also to find some kind of redemption not just in spite of what's happening but often because of it and that seems so counterintuitive and I think we fight against that because we want so much to be able to change it and make that pain go away. But when we embrace it or kiss it, then 
we are open to the possibility of radical, radical transformation of the way that we look at the situation and of us. And another place in my life that I saw that is, you know, I had breast cancer when I was 27 years old and my whole world fell apart and I almost died. And the guy I was going to marry broke up with me because of the side effects of chemo. And I mean, just so many things went wrong. I would never have chosen that in a million years for that to happen in my life. But what happened because I had cancer, not in spite of the fact I had cancer, but because of it was that I moved from the East Coast to the West Coast to start over. And when I got to Portland, Oregon, I ended up meeting a, a refugee mom from Somalia and her little girls on a train one afternoon and developing this beautiful friendship. And then out of the friendship came a book and then out of the book came a trust fund so that these five little girls could go to college. And what I realized was that this amazing opportunity happened that never would have happened if my whole life on the East Coast hadn't fallen apart. And if I had had the faith to trust that no matter how difficult my life was, no matter how dark that season was, that God was going to totally redeem and transform it and that something amazing would happen because I had had to walk through this dark season, I think I would have been quicker to kiss the hand of cancer that I couldn't bite. Yeah, we've often used this idea that without our brokenness, what do we really have to offer the world? Because if we were, if everything was so pie in the sky, we wouldn't be able to truly interact on a deeply personal level with people because so many people are suffering. That's right. Somewhat. And connect and, and really connect yeah. with them. Yeah. So, so, so who listens to Sarah? Um, as the founders of Someone to Tell To, we've written about, you know, the special needs of human beings, particularly friendships with one another. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, is probably the single most compelling reason that we even formed this nonprofit yeah. out of our own need for friendship and deeper connections. And yeah. So who listens to you? I'm blessed. I have a lot of people. I'm surrounded by, by really, really great people who love me and listen well. So my family is wonderful. They've been super supportive and any time of the day or night I can call them and they've walked with me through lots of difficult, difficult things and are just there and the most loving, faithful family I could imagine. And then I have a wonderful church family here who've been really supportive and available to me, especially in this time of adjustment as I've been back from South Sudan. And I have some good friends, too, who, if I need to talk, I can call them anytime, and they will listen for as long as it takes me to just unpack my heart. So they're very, very generous in their time and attention. So I, I feel very loved and listened to. I'm very blessed. You know, we've been doing more and more work uh, through someone to tell it to into the medical community, health clinics, hospitals in particular. And we're, we're very quickly discovering, and we also hear this from people we listen to who are caring for loved ones you know, at home, uh, that, that caregivers, uh, whether it's professional caregivers or, or, or you know, our, our friends or family who are caregivers for someone they love, the caregivers often get overlooked. 
And, you know, and that's why, you know, it's, it's important. It's, we're just really seeing more and more of that of what caregivers go through. And, you know, we, how in addition to having people you can tell it to, you can talk to and share with and open up to, what other kinds of things do you do to, to keep yourself healthy, especially when you're facing such a, extreme and intense circumstances like you have done, you know, in South Sudan and many other places, but, but things that you see every day in, you know, in, in your job as a, as a nurse practitioner. Maintaining balance in the rest of your life and, and finding life-giving things to do that are outside of work, I think is really, really helpful. And so, you know, I love reading. I love writing. Writing is a really great way for me to process life and thoughts and emotions and, and difficult things. If I can write it down, I can understand it and kind of frame it and narrate it and own it. And so writing is really helpful for me. Sunshine is really amazing. Exercise is really good. Beauty. Like sometimes I'll just do a walk around my neighborhood. I live in the Mission District in San Francisco. And there are just some beautiful palm trees and vibrant flowers. And so sometimes if I'm feeling really low or down or exhausted or my heart's heavy by something that's going on, I will take a walk in the sunshine and I will do a photo essay of all of the beauty I could find in an hour. And so looking for that life and that beauty and things that make life worth living, I think is, is really helpful for me. So I think that's important. And then I also think it's important for me as a healthcare provider to connect with my patients, not as a chore that I have to do, not as a diagnosis that I have to fix or solve, but as a human being with whom I'm entering this kind of relationship. And I think that when we look at patients as people, we find this connection that gives us deeper meaning in the work that we do and also takes off some of the burden of making it feel like it's work or it's a job. I think finding that connection, um, and there, there are some studies that are coming out that actually back this up, that when we find connection with our patients as people, it actually dramatically lowers the rate of burnout in healthcare professionals. And so looking at patients that way has actually been really helpful for me too. Yeah, if you if you had a lesson that you would love to teach the medical community here in the US from your life experiences around the world, what would be that lesson? I love the quote, you can practice being right or you can practice being kind. Mm. Mm. And I think a lot of this you know, to, to go into medicine, you have to be a scientist. You have to know the data. You have to know the statistics. You have to know the protocols and the first-line treatments and the regimens. And we know all of these things that are right. A lot of times, though, patients are resistant because we don't understand, you know, we haven't taken the time to make them feel like they're understood or because they're afraid or because they can't afford it or their side effects or things like that. And I think what often our reflex as medical providers is to say, well, here's all of the reasons why I'm right. But I found that that doesn't, that doesn't really help the, the relationship. It actually makes patients more reluctant or resistant and makes them resentful as well. 
and makes it this weird power dynamic of like, I have the authority to tell you what's right. So one of the reasons um, that I've really been learning about this and exploring it, and one of the, the ways in which this often comes up in my practice is that I work in an urgent care, but we don't have the ability to take care of life-threatening things like, like strokes and heart attacks. And so if I see a patient and I'm worried that that's what's going on, I have to refer them to an emergency room and patients never want to go to the ER, right? Like it's scary, it's a long wait, it's expensive, and they don't want to go. And so early in my practice, if I had a patient that I thought was having a heart attack and I told them they had to go to the ER and they told me they weren't going to go or they didn't want to go, I would just come down on them with all of the statistics about why I was right to send them. And then also this fear-based tactic of like, if you don't go, you could die in your sleep tonight. (laughs) And patients hated that, right? (laughs) And I didn't feel good doing it. I didn't go into medicine to yell at people, right? So, but I had this moment where there was a patient that this was happening to, and I realized that all of the data was not getting through to him, and he was becoming more and more resistant to go. And I thought, if I was a patient and I was scared, what would make me go? Like, what would a a healthcare provider have to say to me in order to transform that and make me willing to go? And so what I said to this guy was, here's the deal. The world only gets one of you. And so we have to take the best care of you that we can because we only get you once. I said, my job is to take the best care of you. And the best care that I can take of you today is to send you to the ER because God forbid you're having a heart attack. I, the world can't afford to lose you. And when I said that, when I put it that way, his body just relaxed. He smiled a little bit and he went to the ER. And I realized you can have the same end result, but a much more positive interaction if that, you know, coming back to that quote, if you practice being kind more and you, you prize that over just being right, I think that makes a profound difference in their patients and in the interactions that you have with them. Yeah, in our work, we just trying to stay away from telling people what to do or what to believe even because more times than not it's just not helpful i mean most of us don't like to be told what to do Um, it's it's helping people come to we would say the best decision god has in store for them you know maybe through the holy spirit's activity as opposed to our own and uh it makes such a big difference it reminds reminds me of that the Maya Angelou quote about people don't don't always remember what you've said, but they remember how you made them feel. Yes. And I think that that that, that speaks to your yes, point. Yes, that's speaks so to your point true. right there. It's how you you can give them all mm-hmm. the statistics and all the facts that may be very true, <laughs> and uh, but but how did you yes how did you make him feel loved, valued, important? and um needed in this world and that just certainly makes a difference and and bravo to you for for understanding that getting that and uh for teaching that
So, so we, uh, we're running out of time here, Sarah. Unfortunately, we talked with you all day. Um, yeah. We listened to you all day, too. Just love your story. I know. It's been so fun. So we so want fun. you to end today the same way that you did when you came to Central Pennsylvania mm-hmm. to speak at, our, I think it was our fifth annual gathering. Um, this, this awesome story that Martin Luther King shared in one of his sermons called On Being a Good Neighbor. And we loved when you shared it that night. And and we'd love to just talk a little bit about what Mm. Martin Luther King was was really describing in that sermon. We've since read the book, Mm -hmm. which you pulled the uh, the message. And and, uh, for those of you who are listening and you don't know what altruism is, the dictionary defines it as regard for and devotion mm. to the interest of others. And, and in Martin Luther King's sermon, he's preaching about the parable of the Good Samaritan, which most of our listeners probably have read or heard about. And if you haven't, we encourage you to check it out. Yeah. It's, a, it's a good, good story that shares in the Gospels. Yeah. Uh, but the, the Samaritan essentially reverses the question, unlike the Levite uh, who asked, what will happen if if I don't stop and help this man, what will happen to me? Whereas the Samaritan asked, what will happen to him if I don't stop to help him? And so, you know, uh, we'll talk a little bit about altruism and, 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 you know, he even talks about excessive altruism and in, in, in the sermon and, and you've done some pretty excessive things in your life and you've, you've really gone above and beyond on, on behalf of others. And so we just would love for you to end talking about your reflection. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the way to live a life of love is to reverse the question. And so, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. talks about the difference between the priest and the Levite who didn't stop to help this dying man and the Good Samaritan who did is that the priest and the Levite asked the question, if I stop and help him, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reverses the question and asks instead, if I don't stop and help him, what will happen to him? And I think that often in our lives, because, you know, this kind of comes full circle to when we were talking about the opposite of love isn't hate, it's fear. It's, it's not that the priest and the Levite hated that man who was dying. They didn't even know him. How could they hate him? But they were afraid of what would happen to them if they stopped and helped. And so I think what helps us overcome fear is to reverse the question and to stop asking, if I give generously and I have less money to spend on my comforts or my food this month, what's going to happen to me? If I give my time and I get less sleep, what's going to happen to me? If I knock on my neighbor's door and they refuse me and I feel vulnerable and rejected, what was going to happen to me? Instead of asking those questions, which often we ask out of fear, our life becomes so much richer and fuller if we start asking the question instead, if I don't give generously to people in need, if I don't knock on my neighbor's door and they're lonely or suicidal, if I don't get on a plane to South Sudan and teach medicine, if I don't do those things, what will happen to those people? And I think in asking the question and in, in, you know, in, in asking that reversed question, what we're really doing is where instead of um, looking for bravery, instead of saying, well, there's nothing to be afraid of, I'm just going to do it. It's, we're acknowledging fear, but we're finding what matters more. 
And what matters more to us is the love of Jesus. And we are called to use that love to love our neighbors. That's, this is the golden rule. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I think when we reverse the question, we find the courage to overcome the fear and to live out love towards the people around us who are really in need of it. Absolutely beautiful. And that's a, a perfect way to end. Uh, so Sarah Labarge, we are so very grateful for you joining with us today. It, it absolutely is our privilege to be able to, to reconnect with you, talk with you again, to listen to you again. You, you are inspiring. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> you remind us of, of what love is supposed to be about. And um, thank you. We just thank you. Oh, my pleasure. It's so good to connect with you all again. Once again, thank all of you for joining us and listening today. We hope that uh, you'll be able to, to listen to all of our podcasts, and we encourage you, in fact, to subscribe to them. Because when we subscribe, we, are, we, we generally will listen more. And we hope that these, that these broadcasts, these, these podcasts, are stimulating, inspiring, and encouraging. And they, teach, they, they will teach you something. So please, on, you know, on all of the, the you know, potential possible uh, social media platforms, you, you can find the Someone to Tell the Two podcast, and we hope that you will, and that you will enjoy them all. So thank you again. You can also visit our website, someone2tell2.org.